following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Today's teaching comes from FIBC Senior Pastor N. Eric Nielsen. You know the look that sometimes wives give their husbands that says, you're in the doghouse? Or sometimes that parents give to their children that says, you just wait until we get home. Why don't you turn to someone right now and give them the look? No, and I'm just kidding. You know, we talk about seeing the beauty of the Lord's face, and it's true, we see His character in creation, we see His design, we admire Him. In our... But we don't always know if He's pleased or displeased with us, do we? Because the sun continues to shine even if we've done evil, and it may still be a very cloudy day even though we have been faithful and righteous and uh, obedient. You know, Jesus, when he was here, he displayed the character of the Heavenly Father. And in his face, the disciples could actually see if there was pleasure and joy or if there was displeasure and anger. You know, Mark records when there were Jews who tried to trap him on the Sabbath to see if he would heal a man who had a shriveled hand. And Jesus knew what they were up to, and he asked a very simple question. Because you see, the thing was that it was a Sabbath. And he asked them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? A very easy question. They should immediately know the answer to this question, but they remained silent. And Mark records that Jesus looked around at them with anger. It was very evident on his face that he was displeased with those who were in his presence. We have to remember that hard-heartedness, sinfulness, evil invokes the wrath of God. You know, our anger usually is a sign of our own frustration and our selfish ambition that's been hindered. But God's anger and wrath is a reflection of His holiness and His righteous character. And He is rightfully angry when there's sin or evil. Now, these are the days today when most of mankind doesn't really care what God thinks about things. You know, we're so far advanced in our understanding and our technology. We've seen the other side of Pluto. So we as mankind, we're now in position to tell God what is right and wrong, what He should be pleased with and what He should be displeased with. We get to define the things that He has created. Well, friends, you know what? It remains the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of all wisdom. It is only when we seek His pleasure and His will and pursue that do we truly find satisfaction. Only when we desire to please our Maker and our Savior, only then will we experience real joy and lasting pleasure. Friends, we desperately do need to know what it is that pleases God and what it is that displeases Him. And today, we're going to be learning three lessons that Jesus taught his disciples. See, Jesus didn't only put on display God's character, but he also taught his disciples. And he used parables, stories that his audience could understand. And we today can also understand, generally speaking. I need to stop moving. There we go. And he used a fig tree in a parable, and today we'll learn three lessons that he taught his disciples by using a fig tree. 
He used these parables to teach about the kingdom of God, and I believe you and I should also learn and understand what it is that Jesus was teaching his disciples through the fig tree so that we too can understand God's character and the kingdom of God. And so if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 13, verse 1 through 9, we'll see first Jesus speaking a parable about a fig tree. And then later in the book of Matthew, we'll see him actually using a physical fig tree to teach an object lesson. Luke chapter 13, verse 9, for the first of our lessons from the fig tree. Now, before I begin reading, let me explain to you that Jesus was teaching questions to an audience that began asking him some questions. And his subjects ranged from hypocrisy to greed to being prepared for the day of the Lord, this day of judgment, the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Son of Man, and the need to be ready. And Jesus used metaphors like he will come as a thief in the night. When others will be unprepared, his disciples should be ready. He comes to judge like a master will judge his servant, Jesus said, and will punish those who deserve punishment for not having been faithful. And the master will also entrust more to those servants who have been faithful when he returns. And Jesus also rebuked his listeners for the fact that they were unable to interpret the signs of the times and predict the judgment when they were perfectly able to interpret the signs in the sky to predict the weather. Now, some begin remarking about an incident that they recalled and asked Jesus about a question, or asked Jesus about this incident. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he told this parable. Now, before we get into the parable, to understand what Jesus is going to talk about, maybe a little bit of background here. We're not exactly sure what they were referring to, these, uh, these listeners, but Jesus obviously did understand what they were referring to. And we gather that they were wondering if what had happened to the Galileans were some kind of divine judgment for their own sinfulness. Evidently, Jesus was well aware, aware of this incident. And if we look at the historian Josephus in his writings, we understand that, yes, there were several occasions where Pilate, as the Roman governor, had experienced some uprising from the Jews. And we know that such protests were met by Pilate with ruthless and overwhelming force. And so evidently, they were wondering about this event that Pilate had uh, done or uh, been part of and wondering if the judgment on the, or the, the consequence that those people suffered were specifically a divine judgment. And Jesus brings up another event that we are also uncertain of, but certainly his listeners were well aware of, of people suffering when the Tower of Siloam falls. But with both of those issues, Jesus has pretty much the same answer. Do you think that those people that suffered that fate were worse sinners than those that, than those that didn't? Twice, Jesus says, I tell you, no. But unless, unless you repent, you too will all perish. 
Both questions were answered that way. Essentially, Jesus here is rejecting the notion that personal tragedy is directly connected to individual sin. That was the notion they had. They were wondering, if Jesus is talking about the judgment, was this divine judgment on people for having been sinful? And Jesus says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish, emphasizing that all have sinned and all will be judged but emphasizing just as well that there is a way to escape judgment and not perish. And then he gives this parable. So let's read on in verse 6. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but, it did, not, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So Jesus was using the fig tree to teach a principle that all of us should learn too, that while God judges sin, he offers a time to repent. See, this fig tree failed to bear fruit, fruit that it should have borne. And so the owner of the vineyard decided to cut it down. But the man's vineyard keeper asked to wait just one more year and then see if it will bear fruit. And if not, then cut it down. And this was all to answer or to to explain, I should say, what Jesus meant by saying, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Friends, a lesson for us today is that we have to remember that we are all guilty of sins, and we all deserve God's holy and righteous judgment. The Scriptures tell us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's because sin entered the human race when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and all of us are descendants of Adam and Eve, just in case you were wondering. And you too inherited the sin that infected all of mankind. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Yes, there is no one righteous, not even one. And the message for us, too, is unless we repent of our sins, we, too, will all perish. Learn the lesson of the fig tree. Jesus came with a very simple message His first recorded sermon in the book of Matthew was this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or near. What does it mean to repent? Well, repent means to turn away from our sinful ways. It signifies at least a change of mind and heart, a change of purpose, a change of direction. It is a a demonstration that we regret the choices and actions that we have made in the past, and we are deliberately making different choices and choosing other paths. I believe repentance involves at least four things. First of all, an admission of guilt, because you wouldn't change your mind or your heart or your purpose if you didn't see there was anything wrong with your mind or your heart or your purpose. So it requires at least an admission of guilt, and secondly, it requires a sincere expression of contrition, sorrow, regret. 
And we should sorrow not only because we don't like the consequences that we now have to suffer because of our sin, we should sorrow because we are now separated from God. And the sin that we have committed causes a distance. Thirdly, I believe repentance involves at least this, a plea for forgiveness. Because, you know, as long as we have not been forgiven, the sins can be counted against us. But as soon as we have been forgiven, the sins can no longer be counted against us. And when I say a plea for forgiveness, it means it must be a request, because we are now at the mercy of the one we have offended. And fourthly, repentance involves an active pursuit of the sin's opposite virtue. You cannot just turn around. You need to turn around and walk the other way. Pursue instead of lust and lies and anger and rage, Pursue purity and truth, self-control and love. See, Jesus' death on the cross makes forgiveness of our sins possible so that all have an opportunity now to respond to his call, repent or else you too shall all perish. Just like the servant who kept the vineyard interceded for the fig tree to give it just one more year to bear the fruit that it should have already borne, we have been given an opportunity. You are alive today and have the opportunity to repent of your sins before you perish. Jesus said it clearly that God so loved the world that whosoever should believe in him will have eternal life, shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the question for us is, have we repented for our sins? And are we bearing fruit to the glory of God? And let us also not forget that there are people all around us who, are, who remain in their sin, and that unless they repent, they too will perish. See, the message that Jesus preached to his disciples that they received, Jesus now says, now you go and make disciples of all nations. We are today his ambassadors, the ones who bring the message of reconciliation. We have to warn people that unless they repent, they too shall perish. When you think of a fig tree... Remember that there is still an opportunity to bear fruit before the fig tree will be cut down for not bearing any fruit. And so when you and I are vocal about sin and righteousness, about the need for repentance, the need for forgiveness, the reality of judgment and hell, and the gift of eternal life, well, it ought to be because we know that God is real. We know God is holy and righteous and just. But it's also because we've discovered that he is gracious and merciful and that he offers eternal life as a gift. That's why we tell others about him. And we want to be obedient to the one who called us and saved us and asks us now to go and make disciples of all nations. And it's also because we care that unless they repent, they too will perish. Friends, lesson one from the fig tree is that God offers an opportunity to repent from sins. For lesson two, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 21. Turn backwards in your Bible to Matthew chapter 21. And rather than speaking of a fig tree, Jesus actually encounters a fig tree. And again, for a little bit of background, remember that Jesus and his disciples at this stage were on their way to Jerusalem from where they were staying each night in Bethany. This was his final week of ministry here on earth. 
And the day before this event, Jesus had just cleared the temple area of all those who were using it to, to profit, to, to make money off of those coming to, to make sacrifices and exchanging their money for sacrifices. They were using it as a place to rob people, so Jesus dismissed them all. And in chapter 21, verse 18, it says, Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When Jesus found that there was no fruit on that tree, he cursed it, that it would never bear fruit again. Why? At first, to some of us, it seems impulsive, doesn't it? It seems like something we would do. Frustrated that we were hungry and that there, was no, there wasn't food there, and I'm, I'm going to write a bad review about this restaurant. Or I'm going to write a letter to the management. It seems like that. It seems impulsive and because of irritation. And that Jesus was abusing his divine power that he could speak to the tree and then it would die. Well, you see, we have to understand that the tree should have had fruit. This wasn't the season for figs, so Jesus would normally not be expecting figs, but Jesus saw that there were leaves. And the fig tree is such that it bears leaves first, excuse me, that it bears fruit before it bears leaves. So in other words, if there are leaves on the tree, then there should be fruit on the tree as well. In other words, the tree was advertising that it had fruit because it had leaves. But when he came closer, there was no fruit on it. See, Jesus didn't have to eat. It says he was hungry, but it doesn't mean he was angered by the lack of fruit. He could have easily commanded there to be fruit, and there would have been fruit for him to eat. He didn't use his power to satisfy his hunger. Remember that even after four days of fasting, he could have turned stones into bread, but chose not to. Jesus was using this fig tree to teach a lesson. He was using an acted parable, a dramatized parable. And it's not the first time that one of God's prophets have done this before. Remember Isaiah walking around naked and barefoot as a prophet to symbolize Egypt's shame. If God called me as a prophet to do that, I would certainly be wondering, God, do you really want me to do that? Jeremiah broke an earthen jar and wore a yoke around his neck, symbolizing Judah's judgment. And a barren fig tree represents a land under divine judgment. So the cursed fig tree must represent a fruitless Israel, one that was supposed to have been bearing fruit. Its leaves were advertising that it had fruit, but in fact, it was only pretending to be fruitful. What Jesus was teaching about was the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, those whom he had just been among and who he will continue to be among in the course of this week. And I believe that we should also avoid the spiritual hypocrisy that the religious leaders of Israel were guilty of. What Jesus wants from us is real fruit, the fruit of his life in us. See, the context of Matthew's gospel includes the fact that the temple was cleansed, Jesus challenged the religious leaders, he taught parable after parable to condemn their hypocrisy. And at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, remember what John the Baptist brought as a message as well to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, they came out to meet 
John the Baptist as well and see what he was doing. But what did he tell them? He said, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, I'm already under divine favor. I can't be under divine judgment. He said, the ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Those scathing words for the religious hypocrites in Jesus' day. The act of Jesus may have been harsh, but he was condemning hypocrisy throughout his ministry, speaking of hell's destruction. Remember, too, that Jesus was not harsh or destructive with the lives of those who came to him earnestly, sincerely, needing healing or desiring truth. And I believe Jesus wants us to bear the fruit of his life in us as well. It's easy for us to be spiritually hypocritical. You know, we come to church on Sundays, we look great. We're involved in ministries, we smile, we look as though everything is wonderful. But do we really worship when we're not at church? Do we serve when no one else is watching? Do we truly love others and even our enemies? See, he wants fruit that's a result of his life. If you abide in me, Jesus says, you will bear much fruit. You will bear much fruit if you abide in him. And that fruit is a result of daily prayer and reading and constant confession of our sins, worship throughout our day, spiritual warfare through prayer against the enemy. Friends, God knows that you and I are not perfect. It's silly for us to pretend before God. Shouldn't it be that while we're among the Christians, part of a church, that this is the place that we know we don't have to put on a front? Here is the place we know together that it's a struggle to live the Christian life, that we don't have it all together. This is, should be the place where we can encourage each other and say, I know what you're going through. It's okay. It's not okay that you're going through sinful behavior. That's not what we're saying when we sympathize with each other, but we're saying that we understand what it's like to fall for temptation. We know what it's like to be imperfect. That's why we cling to the Savior. That's why we're in fellowship together. That's why we need each other. To assure each other, we know what it's like to fight temptation. It is not hypocritical to be sinful and imperfect. It is hypocritical to pretend that we are holy and righteous while we continue in our sinful behavior. That's what I believe Jesus is warning us of. And those of us who have repented of our sins, are we bearing the fruit of that repentance? When you think of the fig tree, think about the fact that if it is full of leaves, then it should also be full of fruit. He never gave the tree an opportunity to bear more fruit when he cursed the, the, the tree and said, you would never bear fruit again. <clears throat> now, the third lesson comes because the disciples were amazed. Verse 20. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So if lesson two is that God despises hypocrisy, then lesson three from the fig tree is that God desires faith. See, the disciples were amazed. It was so quick that the tree suddenly withered. And Jesus taught his disciples that they can do even more amazing things if they have the faith and do not doubt. 
And this lesson has been the source of much confusion on the teaching of faith. Perhaps you've heard of the word faith movement, that you can simply speak and proclaim healing upon the sick, and believing it, it will happen. You can speak salvation upon the ungodly. You can speak prosperity upon the poor. That if you have declared it to be true, and you have believed it to be true, then it will be true. But friends, what if the sick aren't healed? Some of the ungodly are not saved, and some of the poor remain poor. And it even happens to those who call themselves faith healers. They too have friends and family that suffer from cancer and eventually succumb to it. Now their explanation would be, well, it must be you lacked faith. You see, because if the declaration is necessary and the faith is necessary, then default, it must be if it didn't happen, then it was a lack of the faith. That must be to blame, because it certainly isn't God's inability. Well, I would contend that you cannot twist God's arm into action. If it truly were name it and claim it, or as some would say, blab it and grab it, then all of us would be healthy, wealthy, and wise, wouldn't we? We have to understand the difference between believing in God's ability, His power to do it, and then whether or not it's His will to do it, that God acts to reveal His glory, and maybe His glory is greater in the person continuing to suffer. We have to remember, too, that Jesus prayed Himself that the cup could be passed, this cup of wrath that He would endure. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, speaking to the Father, asking that the cup be removed. What did the Father, or excuse me, what did, he finally, what did the Son finally say? He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Paul the, the Apostle, he even asked again and again that the thorn be removed from his side. And how did the Lord respond to that request? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And he didn't remove the thorn from his side. So, I believe that when, what Jesus is speaking of is that when we believe and ask within the will of God, we'll see even greater things than a fig tree withering upon command. God is powerful to do, enough, to do what seems impossible to us. With God, nothing is impossible, Jesus said. And he demonstrated that God does the supernatural when the worst of sinners and tax collectors repent when the dead are raised to life, when the storm is stilled, when the blind would see and the deaf would hear and the lame would leap, even walking on water is not impossible. Jesus taught that faith, even as small as a mustard seed, is all that was necessary. You know, come to think of it, sometimes a person was healed and they never even expressed faith. The centurion, he came to Jesus asking Jesus to heal his slave. The slave never expressed faith. The centurion did. So if the outcome is not dependent on my faith, but it is dependent upon God, then I cannot blame a lack of faith if my prayer didn't turn out how I wanted it or expected it. Friends, we simply have to learn how to pray as Jesus prayed. Lord, perform this miracle. Do this great thing. Reveal your glory this way. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. If we believe that God is sovereign enough and He has the power to overcome every physical limitation, 
then isn't he also sovereign enough to let him determine if it should be done or not? Let's distinguish between the abilities of God and the will of God. Let's continue to believe in his abilities as we bring our requests to him. We know that with God, it is impossible to please him without faith. So that while God despises hypocrisy, he desires for us to express faith. When we pray for a person's salvation, we believe because it can only be God at work in the heart of an unrepentant person. When we pray for a miraculous healing is because we know that the doctors have reached their limits and God's power can heal anyone whom the doctors have given up on. When we pray for safety and travel, it's because we know that God can overcome human errors and the spiritual forces of darkness that may or may not be present. And when we ask and pray for provision, it's because we know that God has an amazing way to provide for us, even though we don't know how he's going to do it. So the lesson I believe we can learn here is that we should simply trust God to do what is humanly impossible. When you think of the fig tree, remember that Jesus could override that which was natural and physical. And he said that if you believe whatever you ask for in prayer, you will receive. So three things that I believe Jesus wanted us to learn by using a fig tree. The first was that he offers an opportunity for people to repent of our sins in order to bear fruit for his glory. The second is that he despises hypocrisy, pretending to be fruit-bearing when we're really only putting on a show. And finally, that God desires faith from us so that he can do great things that will amaze us and bring him glory. Let us pray. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.